Born again. If you have your Bibles, we are continuing where I left off since I was gone last week. I thank Bruce for filling in for me. But uh, we're in Revelation chapter 11. So turn in your Bibles to Revelation 11. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and Dr. Kevin here will bring one right to your seat. And uh, he'll check and see if anything's wrong with you in the same time. And uh, Of course, it'll cost you, but hey... <laughs> Sorry, Kevin. <laughs> Revelation chapter 11. The title of my message is a math problem. One temple plus two prophets equals three woes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, to be in this place, knowing, Lord, that you are here. Holy Spirit, that you are here to speak to our hearts to give us not only understanding of this chapter, but application in our hearts that we might uh, know you better, serve you more with our hearts, that we would leave this place more in love with you than when we first came in. Father, we pray if there's anyone here that has not surrendered their heart and life to you, they're not born again uh, this morning, Lord, would you especially touch their heart. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity just to be in your word and to gather. Bless the children downstairs as they are being taught your word, and and they're growing in their relationship with you, Lord. Bless our time together, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Perhaps you've seen this meme on social media. It's titled, If 2020 Was a Math Problem. You're paddling down the creek at two miles per hour, and your kayak loses a wheel. How many cantaloupes would it take to reshingle your roof? Doesn't that make perfect sense? I mean, that is what 2020 is all about. Now, when it comes to God, his math problems make perfect sense. They always work out. God says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God equals eternal life through Jesus Christ, my son. Well, here in Revelation chapter 11, and as a result of the wages of sin, is that God is pouring his wrath out upon a Christ-rejecting world. But at the same time, even in the midst of this great tribulation period, God is offering uh, the answer to all of man's problems, the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. He says, if you take repentance plus confession and belief, add it all up and it equals salvation. Another math equation, I found this illustration of it, I thought it was pretty cool. John 3.16, repent, believe equals salvation. See, what we're going to find as we look into chapter 11 is God is still seeking men and women to be saved even during this time known as a great tribulation. Now, if you're taking notes, our three points really are tied into our, our title of the math equation. We're going to see, number one, one temple. Number two, two prophets. Number three, three woes. Chapter 11 opens up with the focus being on the city of Jerusalem. It's interesting how Jerusalem has been a point of conflict to this very day. You can't pick up a newspaper without reading something about an Arab-Israeli conflict in Israel, especially focused in the city of Jerusalem. And it's ironic because Jerusalem means the city of peace, yet more wars have been fought over the city than any other city in human existence. From the siege of David in 1000 B.C. to the Six-Day War in 1967, this city of peace has experienced 46 seizes and partial destructions. It's been burned to the ground five different times, but always rises from the ashes. 
Yet the worst is yet to come because the Bible teaches in the last days, Jerusalem will be the center of even more conflicts. Listen to Zechariah chapter 12, verse 3. It says, On that day when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone, a burden for the world. None of the nations who try to lift it up will escape unscathed. Now this is something that we've seen and our generation, to be true. Again, all you need to do is do a quick search online or TV, and you read about the hatred that there is for Israel, from Turkey, from Iran, from from even Russia. But the Bible tells us there that, that before the Lord returns, all the nations of the earth will be against Israel. Listen to the amplified version of Zechariah chapter 12, verse 3. It says, in that day, I will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all peoples. All who lift it or burden themselves with it shall be sorely wounded, and all the nations of the earth shall come and gather together against it. You know, it says that, that all that come against it and that all that try to lift the burden from it, all those that, 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 that will, will they'll be sorely wounded is what it says. And certainly we as a country over the years, have been sorely wounded in the sense that we've tried to lift the burden by supporting Israel. And as a result, we've had terrorists come and, and, and attack us and, and they you know, call for jihad and, and Muslim holy wars in the United States. Why? Because of our support for Israel. You know, they call Israel the little Satan and, and we the U.S. are the great Satan. And again, the, the large portion of what they've done against the U.S. is because of their hatred for Israel. This, this little country with no real strategic superiority, is always in the focus. My son-in-law Calvin and I yesterday morning figured out just how big Israel is in comparison to Missouri. And I did a little more research. I found that Israel is some 290 miles in length from the top to the furthest point south and about 85 miles across at the widest point. So that's like from saying from, from Branson to St. Louis is how long it is and from Springfield to Joplin, why? That's not very big at all. It's no bigger than the, than the state of New Jersey. No real strategic superiority, uh, but, it, but it's always in focus. And I might add, Jerusalem is always at the center of attention. And yet the Bible tells us that those that bless Israel will be blessed, and those that curse Israel will be cursed. And, and I truly believe that our nation has been abundantly blessed these last four years because of our support for Israel, because of, of our embassy being moved to Jerusalem, because of the peace agreements that President Trump has, has brought about with these Muslim nations. Now, we know that can change very, very quickly as a result of the outcome of this election. We'll have to wait and see. But my point is this. Israel and the Jewish people will be the very focus. Uh, all the way through the Great Tribulation period. It's about them. And this brings us to what's going on in Israel in chapter 11 of Revelation. And point number one, one temple. Look at verses 1 and 2. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. So John here is given a measuring rod, a a ruler, if you will, and told to rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. 
Now, there are a number of things that have happened and still have to happen in order for this prophecy to be fulfilled. And I'll point them out in just a moment. But I find something interesting here is that John is told to measure those who worship in the temple. Why measure them? Well, God is the judge of man's worship and God is the judge of man's character and God is the judge of man's heart. And God is the one that sees the real you. And when you come into this place on Sunday morning, you come into this place on Wednesday evening, and we start to sing the songs that are being played, God sees if it's really true worship from your heart or if it's just a fun sing-along time. You know, he, he sees if we're truly pouring our hearts and praise out to Him or if we're just singing the song because it's a really cool song. Even the Christmas songs that we do this time of year, when you think about the lyrics, they're all directed towards the praise and worship of God. But let me say this. It's easy for any one of us, me included, to lose focus when it comes to worship if we don't prepare our hearts and our minds to to enter into that place of worship. To come to the church, as Psalm 100 verse 4 tells us, enter his gates with thanksgiving, go into his courts with praise, give thanks to him and praise his name. In other words, to, to come in the church building prepared to have this opportunity to worship the Lord, to know that, that you're going to be in his presence offering him praise and thanksgiving. Not coming in distracted. Oh, did I leave the stove on or... I really don't like that song. And uh, I've got so much to do when service is over. If that's our heart when we enter worship, then it's just routine. It's not real worship. We're not focused in on who we are worshiping. That's why we need to prepare our hearts for worship, to focus our minds on the one who we're singing to and about and to let him know, our Lord know, just how much we love him. Psalm 145, verse 1 through 3 says, I will exalt you, my God and King, and praise your name forever and ever. I will praise you every day. Yes, I will praise you forever. Great is the Lord. He is most worthy of praise. No one can measure His greatness. Tis my prayers. We come together at any one time in this building that we would have a heart and a passion for God, to seek God, to focus in on Him and build our relationship with Him. To sing songs of praise and thanksgiving for all he's done because as the psalmist says, he is most worthy of all of our praise. So here John again in verse 1 says, uh, is told to rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. Now, again, a number of things have happened but still has to happen in order for this prophecy to be fulfilled, in order for John to measure the temple. First and foremost, Jerusalem must be in Jewish hands. Otherwise, how would there be a temple and how would the temple be rebuilt? I guarantee you the Muslims are not going to do it. Only the Jews are going to rebuild their temple. Now we know that the city of Jerusalem is in Jewish hands. This has been fulfilled, in fact, within the lifetime of many of us here. It was in the Six-Day War in 1967 that Jerusalem once again came under the Jewish control. I wasn't born yet. That's a lie. Um, <laughs> I was nine years old. But I remember it, actually. So, first, the, the Jews must control Jerusalem at this point in time. Despite the efforts to split it up, it's still under Jewish control. Then the second thing that must happen for this prophecy to be fulfilled is there has to be a temple there. 
The temple must be rebuilt. And that has not happened yet. There's no temple in Jerusalem. But they're getting close. See, the scripture teaches that when the Antichrist comes, one of the key things that he is going to do is he's going to help the Jews rebuild their temple. And that's a very important thing because the Bible says once that temple is complete, about three and a half years into it, uh, the, the Great Tribulation, he's going to do a very wicked thing. He is essentially going to declare himself as God and show his true colors. And this is what will be referred to, and we've talked about this before, the abomination of desolation. Matthew 24, verse 15 and 16, Jesus says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads it him understand that those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Because at this point, the Antichrist will erect an image of himself and demand that image to be worshipped in the newly rebuilt temple. Of this event, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, speaking of the Antichrist, that he's the one who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So because of those verses, we know that there has to be a temple there in Jerusalem. So then by the evidence of someone trying to, to, to any rather, any evidence of someone trying to build the temple, man, it should be watched by true believers with great interest, because we know that it's something that the Antichrist is going to accomplish. Now, let me say this. I don't expect to see the temple rebuilt in my lifetime. Because before the temple can be rebuilt, you know, and before the Antichrist is revealed, Scripture teaches that we as believers will be taken out of here in the rapture of the church. But here's what's interesting. There are movements right now underway uh, to rebuild the temple. So up until this point in time, it's always believed that the temple could not be rebuilt because there on the Temple Mount in Israel, a fellow by the name of Omar built a mosque, commonly called the Dome of the Rock. They built this huge building over the rock that was claimed to be the rock that sat in the Holy of Holies in the Jewish temple. Now the same spot later became the place believed by Muslims where Muhammad on his wonder horse, it is a horse that had a face of a woman and could fly. Muhammad launched from that very spot and went on his midnight ride up into heaven. Muslims believe it's a place where Muhammad ascended into heaven and received the Quran. So that by building this mosque and, co- and covered it with this, the, the, the massive gold dome, you know, the Jews really can't put their temple there. Because if the Jews came along today and said, listen, we're going to blow this thing up. This shouldn't be here. We want to build our temple. Man, there would be big trouble. I mean, it would be chaos. Instead of Palestinians just throwing rocks or burning tires, we're talking a billion Muslims who would set out to make war immediately. It would be a bloodbath. Israel knows this. The Jewish community knows this, that it would be suicidal. They know that they cannot rebuild the temple without starting a major jihad or a holy war. But get this, recent archaeological uh, events have revealed that the actual Temple of Solomon, later rebuilt by Herod, torn down in 70 A.D., may not be where that dome with a rock presently sits. It may be about 26 meters or 36 yards away. 
And if that study is valid, it means that the temple could possibly be rebuilt just north of the dome of the rock. Well, then it makes perfect sense when you read verse 2 here of chapter 11, as John was told to leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months or three and a half years. Now, what is also interesting is that they may not be building the temple at this time, but right now there are groups that are absolutely prepared once given the word to do it, to build it. According to uh, Chaim Richman, the director of the Temple Institute there in Jerusalem, his headquarters are just a short distance away from the western wall in the old city, a temple in waiting has essentially already been created. He writes... The Temple Institute is actively engaged in the research and preparation of the resumption of service in the Holy Temple to the extent of actually preparing operational blueprints for the construction of the Temple according to the most modern standards. According to this Temple Institute, they have already created over 60 sacred temple vessels that will be needed in the worship in in the Temple. They've already created the high priest breastplate containing the 12 precious stones of the tribes of Israel. They've already created the musical instruments of the Levitical choir, and they prepared all their priestly garments. These garments are going to be, uh, will adorn a new generation of Levitical priests who are already in training for the job. They have a, a red heifer that's used to start the sacrifices, already been raised without spot, without blemish. In fact, one of the directors of the Temple Mount Institute has said this, you can feel it in the air, something is coming, there can be no peace without the Temple. And here's what's interesting, the Jews believe that the Messiah is going to come back and help them build a Temple. Ironically, as I said, the Antichrist is going to be the one helping them rebuild the Temple, and he's going to mislead many of the Jews as he establishes his rule, and then three and a half years into it, the abomination of desolation his true colors are going to come out. He's going to come in. He's going to disguise everything he says. It's peace and harmony. and We can all just get along. And, and, uh, and, and uh, this religious system is inclusive. Everybody, no matter where you stand, he's going to be the kind of guy that you really love if you don't know any better. He's not going to come on the scene like this evil, vile person in, in the beginning stages. You know, you picture the guy, where he's always wearing black Nothing wrong with black, but he's always wearing black. He's got the goatee and it just looks evil. That's, that's not where he's going to come on the scene. He's going to be a guy that people look up to and they go, whoa, this, this guy is, is cool. But then his true colors are going to come out. And through peace, the Bible says he will deceive many. Yet in the midst of all of this, the temple is going to be rebuilt. The Antichrist on the scene as usual and, and God's mathematical equations God has his witnesses. God will always have his witnesses. He will always have his representatives. And that brings us to our second point. One temple plus point number two, two prophets. Look at verse three. He says, and I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. So God will send two witnesses to prophesy during this time for 1,260 days or three and a half years, first half of the Great Tribulation. Now, why two witnesses? 
Well, because we read in 2 Corinthians 13, in the mouth of two witnesses, let every word be confirmed. Think about this. Two witnesses told the woman at the tomb of Jesus that he had risen from the dead. Two men in white apparel also appeared to the disciples when Jesus rose into heaven, reminding them of his second coming. Joshua sent two spies that Rahab the heart he had to keep them safe. Jesus sent out his disciples, what? Two by two. In the mouth of two witnesses, let every word be confirmed. So our Lord, he's sending two witnesses. And we read that they're not going to be in the most comfortable of clothing. <laughs> a little outdated. Clothed in sackcloth. I picture like, like a burlap, you know, sackcloth, really kind of itchy thing. But it, it really is a sign of humility before the Lord. But you better not be their enemy. Why? I'll look at verse 5. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. Someone says, I'm going to get you. No, fire, you're gone. Poof. See, these are not ordinary Christian witnesses. These are the special ops Christian witnesses. They're in the secret witness protection program. Now, verse 4 says, These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of this earth. Uh, Zechariah 4 is, is what this is referring to. In his book, Zechariah speaks of the last time, and in, in the last times, how he had a vision. In this vision, he saw olive trees producing olive oil flowing down this golden tube right into the lampstands or the candlesticks, a constant flow of oil coming into them. Zechariah 4, uh, the lamps represented Israel's leaders at that time, Joshua the priest, Zerubbabel the governor, The olive trees are symbolic of the power that fueled these men to do what God had called them to do. And that's why Zechariah goes on to say in Zechariah chapter 4 verse 6, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That's our verse for 2020, our verse of the year. Listen, ministry is only accomplished through the power of the Holy Spirit. These two men in Zechariah's day, as well as these two witnesses in the last days, as well as as all of God's witnesses today, you and I, we're empowered by the Holy Spirit. And this is something that we need to be reminded of from time to time. All Christian witness is fueled by the Spirit of God. That is, God's Spirit and God's anointing is what enables us to do that which God has called us to do be it cleaning diapers down in the nursery downstairs or or ushering or security or singing on the worship team, whatever ministry you may have, even if it's ministry in your home, wives serving your husband, submitting to him as unto the Lord, you need the Spirit of God to do that. Husband loving your wife as Christ loved the church, you need the Spirit of God ministering through you to do that. Both of you raising your children in the ways of the Lord, man, we need a lot of help with that, Lord. That's full-time ministry. But we can't do it on our own. We need God's help. We need the Spirit of God working in and through our lives and empowering us to do that which God has called us to do. It's only through God's Holy Spirit that He's anointed you and anointed I and has prepared you for His service to be that light, to have that power to fulfill God's ministry for our lives. So these two prophets, they come on the scene middle of the tribulation, anointed by the Holy Spirit to minister to the light of the world, Jesus Christ, to bear witness of Jesus. We see them burning brightly. Verse 5 said, If anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. Boy, how would you have, like to have that gift of the Holy Spirit? You have the gift of the Holy Spirit? Well, you know, i got the gift of speaking in tongues or 
or prophecy. I got the gift of fire coming out of my mouth. <laughs> kind of scary. I, I mean, here, uh, you know, here are these guys. And now, we're not 100% sure who they are. First 5 goes on to say, look at this, and if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of the prophecy, and they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. A lot of speculation over who these two witnesses are. If you happen to be here Wednesday night, a young man wandered into our church and either high on drugs or some really deep psychological problems, or both, but somewhere within the conversation I was having with him, wanting to help him out, he mentioned to me that he was one of the two witnesses of Revelation chapter 11. I was quite surprised. I said, you've got fire that comes out of your mouth. Are you the one with the blood? Are you the one with the, the plague? I, I kind of, no, actually I said, no, you're not. <laughs> so not no. Then he proceeded to want to get violent and we had to escort him off the property. Crazy. You know, what's crazy to me is this is not the first time that's happened to me. And I don't know why God allowed this, but years ago, one time with, with Pastor Dennis out in California, a man came to him claiming to be one of those two witnesses. It's like a few years after that, a guy out in California came to me and said, I'm one of those two witnesses. And now this guy went tonight. Maybe he's from California. I, I don't know. <laughs> claiming to be one of these two witnesses. I think, why on earth would you want to be one of those two witnesses? I mean, you're going to be in the middle of the tribulation period when this happens. You don't want to be here. In any case, who are these two witnesses? They've been given the power to, for fire to proceed from their mouths, to stop the rain, turn water to blood, strike the earth with plagues as often as they desire. Well, that sounds an awful lot like Moses and Elijah to me. And I personally believe that's who they'll be. I can't say for sure, but that's where I lean. And you say, well, Tom, you mean that God's going to reincarnate Moses and Elijah? No, not reincarnate, but resurrect. Bring them back for a relatively short ministry, and then they're going to return back to heaven. The Bible doesn't teach reincarnation. The Bible says man is appointed once to die, and after that, judgment. But this is something different because it has a specific purpose. Why do I believe that they're Moses and Elijah? Well, for one reason, in the book of Malachi, last book in the Old Testament, if you're Italian, Malachi, uh, tells us, that's an old joke, and, and I don't blame you for not laughing. <laughs> Chapter 4, verse 5, says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So we know before the coming of, of Christ to this earth, Elijah must make an appearance. So I believe one of them is Elijah because they have the power to stop the rain. What did Elijah have power to do? Stop the rain. They have the power to call fire down from heaven. What did Elijah have the power to do? To call fire down from heaven. Now, the other witness, we also have a clue who he will be because in verse 6 it says that this witness has power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. What prophet had the ability to, to turn water to blood? That was Moses. Have we ever seen Moses and Elijah together at the same time? Absolutely. Mount of Transfiguration. Remember that story. Jesus took Peter, James, and John up into the Temple Mount there and he, he told them to watch and pray and, and Peter fell asleep and he woke up and, and before his eyes there was Jesus shining brightly and Moses and Elijah on either side of them and they're, they're talking to Jesus about his impending death and resurrection. 
what a conversation that might have been. And, and Peter's kind of rubbing his eyes and, and, and not knowing what to say. He says, it's good that we are here. And I'm sure, you know, Moses and Elijah looked at Jesus and go, who is this guy? What is going on here? I mean, come on, here's Jesus and Moses and Elijah there. And, uh, you know, and the Bible says it, that he said this because he didn't know what to say. He says, good that we're here. Let's build three tabernacles. One for Moses, one for Elijah, one for you, Jesus. There you go. Now I got it covered. Oh. You know, it's a good lesson for us when you don't know what to say. Don't say anything at all. Well, that was Peter. But there they were, transfigured Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. And I, that's, that's why I tend to believe this is going to be Moses and Elijah come back. And they're going to bring with them some pretty radical miracles. Fire coming down from heaven, water being turned to blood, droughts, plagues. Look at verse 7, he goes on. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where our, also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the peoples, tribes, and tongues and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. So we see at this point, these two witnesses are boldly proclaiming the gospel. And while they are, the Antichrist can't touch them. But verse 7, when they finish their testimony, the beast that is sent out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them, it says. In other words, these two will be absolutely protected until they finish what God had called them to do. Then the Lord will bring them home in the most unusual way. But know this, they were both indestructible until they finished their task. They were indestructible until they finished their testimony. Listen, in the same way, in the purposes and in the sovereignty of God, every man, every woman that, that is invincible until his or her testimony is finished. Now that doesn't mean that everyone's going to live to be as old as Abraham or even Moses, but according to God's word, our lives are kept in the secure hands of our omnipotent God until our work is done, until our task is finished. Sometimes some of the most powerful ministries that have blessed mankind have been very, very brief. John the Baptist ministered at, at, at the most three years. Our Lord Jesus ministered at the most three and a half years. You might be familiar with David Brainerd, American missionary to the Native Americans, died when he was just 29 years old, back in 1718, October 9, 1747. F.W. Robertson, amazing preacher of Britain, died when he was just 37 years old. How about this? I, I just found this out. Oswald Chambers, the Scottish-born preacher, after becoming a Christian in his teenage years, he tutored in philosophy. He did a worldwide preaching tour in 1906 to 1907. He was a principal of a Bible college, ministered to soldiers in Egypt with the YMCA. He did all of that before the age of 43 years old. He died at 43 years old. He's most known for, for his classic devotion called My Utmost for His Highest. If you've ever read that devotion, it's amazing. Let me share with you just a portion of that book that gives us insight into his life. 
he, even though he knew much about suffering, he wrote this. Does it really matter that our circumstances are difficult? Why shouldn't they be? If we give way to self-pity and indulge in the luxury of misery, we remove God's riches from our lives and hinder others from entering into his provision. No sin is worse than the sin of self-pity because it removes God from the throne of our lives, replacing him with our own self-interest. It causes us to open our mouth only to complain, and we simply become spiritual sponges, always absorbing, never giving, and never being satisfied. And he wrote that probably in his 30s. Amazing. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the Lutheran pastor who resisted the Nazis and eventually was killed by them, had done so much in his short life. After getting several theological degrees in America and Europe, he pastored German churches in Barcelona and London. He died at 39 years old. Let's get a little close to our time. Jim Elliott, 1927 and 1956, American missionary, one of the five young men killed in South America, faithfully serving the Lord, just 29 years old. And his story is told all over the place. I think of uh, back in the, in, the, in the early 80s, Keith Green. Many of you that have been walking with the Lord for a while remember him. Well-known musician, songwriter, great evangelist. His life was cut short in a plane crash. Died at the age of 28 years old. Here's my point. The promise of God doesn't mean that ministry is going to be long and extended. It just means that we are invincible and immortal and indestructible until our testimony is finished. W.A. Criswell says, puts it this way in his, his commentary. He says, When a man is in the will of God, and when he is doing God's work, when he is delivering God's message, God stands by him to uphold him and to strengthen him. He doesn't need to worry about tragic accidents. He doesn't need to think about death. He doesn't even need to be worried or anxious about himself. God takes care of his servants, and the Spirit of the Lord burns in the heart of a true and faithful witness. You know, the same thing is true for you today, Christian. You are indestructible until you have completed your task. COVID or no COVID. You don't need to be worried. You don't need to be anxious. God takes care of his servants. And, and only when God says you're done will you be done. And God will say, come on home. And that's a win-win situation. So we see here God uses the Antichrist to do in these two prophets. Verse 7 again says, The beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them and overcome them and kill them. Now this is the first of 36 references that Revelation makes to the beast. Now, it's interesting that the Lord allows the Antichrist, the beast, to kill these two witnesses since the witnesses can destroy their enemies with fire from their mouths. But again, this is what God is allowing to happen. God is in control here. This is God's will once their testimony was complete. These witnesses are killed by the beast. They're laid in the streets of Jerusalem. And in verse 9, it says that everybody, all people, tribes, tongues, nations, will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into the graves. Now, how is that possible? How can everybody from all over the world see this all at once? Well, years ago, people would question the validity of that verse. They would say, well, how is that possible that all the world will look at these bodies for three days lying in Jerusalem? It's impossible. In fact, listen to what J. Vernon McGee wrote in his commentary somewhere back, I think, in the late 50s or early 60s, way before the technology we have today. He wrote this. Apparently, 
this future generation will have something that corresponds to a television camera and a satellite that will carry the picture all over the world so that people everywhere will be able to look upon the features of these men for three and one half days. Well, Jay, technology's here. It's been here for quite a while. You know, I, I think it may have been impossible for 100 years ago, maybe even 75 years ago. But the technology is certainly here. Every channel that's out there will be broadcasting this cable TV, satellite TV. In fact, you can go right now, you can live stream uh, the Wailing Wall there in Jerusalem. You can see it right now, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. My point is the technology is there. It's already in place. So we see these two prophets that we put to death and all will see it. Then look at verse 10. We read, And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make marriages and gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Just the, the epitome of evil and really a bizarre twist. Here are God's servants murdered and folks around the world are making merry. Maybe they're singing carols and drinking eggnog and exchanging gifts and throwing a party. It's the anti-Christmas party, you know, for the anti-Christ world. I mean, what are they going to call it? Dead Prophets Day? I don't know. Hey, Merry Dead Prophets Day. Yeah, to you too. Hey, I got your gift. The world is going to be celebrating. The world is going to be partying. Those guys that tormented us with that miserable message of God's love and grace, they're finally dead. No, it was really their faithful message that tormented the people during this time. In the same way today, you know what? Our faithful message is tormenting those around us. Today, the world wants to drown out the truth. The world doesn't want to hear that marriage is only between a man and a woman. The world doesn't want to hear that that life begins at conception. The world doesn't want to hear that the only way to God is through Jesus Christ. The, The Bible is just not an opinion. The morality isn't an option or open to your own private interpretation. Those positions are hated right now and they will be in the future. They'll cause the death of God's servants. But understand, there's always a second chapter. There's always another sentence, always. However bleak, however the apparent triumph of evil in this world is, up and above and over and beyond, there is a sovereign God who reigns. And the issues of life and death are in his hands. I mean, imagine this. The Antichrist, he's throwing a party. The world is all tuned in. It's like Times Square on New Year's Eve. And everybody's glasses raised. It's time for a toast. The world is partying and hoping to see the apple drop. And instead, God warns them the hammer's about to fall. Suddenly, as the camera spins around and focuses on the corpse of these two dead witnesses, we see in verse 11, after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. They stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them, I bet. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in the cloud, and their enemies saw them. Wow. Talk about night of the living dead. I mean, they're all partying, they're all having a good time because these two prophets are dead, really dead. But suddenly, in the midst of the celebration, shock. God breathed life into them, and they stand to their feet. Hey, boys. And up to heaven they go. That's a big time in your face miracle. And let me say, just one of the many miracles that will happen during the great tribulation period. 
God's heart is for men and women to be saved even during this time. There's going to be angels flying across the sky proclaiming the gospel in a kind of an angelic mop-up operation that the, you know, maybe the, the 144,000 Jewish Billy Graham didn't reach some people, so these angels are going to be flying around. And, and then you got, you know, the testimonies of these two witnesses. God is going to reach every tribe, every nation, every tongue with the gospel. They will hear the gospel. But understand, with knowledge brings responsibility and what to do once you hear the gospel. And here's what's amazing. During this time of radical miracles, in spite of this incredible demonstration of God's power and raising these two prophets from the dead, there will still be those that will reject and refuse to believe in Jesus Christ. There will still be those that will continue on to live in wickedness and rebellion against God. Now why is that? Because they've been deceived. Satan is the, the, the brilliant imitator. And he's going to have his man of the hour, the beast, the Antichrist, and along with him will be the false prophet we'll read about in future studies. He'll be sort of the religious arm of the agenda for the beast, the Antichrist. He'll be working in the faith community or the interfaith community, developing a religious deception that people will buy into. In fact, Revelation 13.13 says of the false prophet, he will perform great and miraculous signs even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of man. Deception, and, and, and which is one of the miracles of the two prophets, uh, fire coming down. People are going to be deceived. Listen, only God can do miracles, and all the devil can do is lying wonders that people mistake for miracles. The Bible says in the, the end times there are going to be a lot of lying wonders in the last days. Satan is a master of lying wonders. Remember Pharaoh's magicians? They were able to imitate some of the miracles that were done by the hand of Moses and Aaron. You know, they, they touched the staff to the Nile River. It became blood. The Pharaoh's magicians did the same thing. You know, they got the frog, the plague of frogs. The, the, you know, the, the Pharaoh's you know, magicians did the same thing. It was just crazy to me. Why do you want to make things worse for you by creating the same thing? But they couldn't duplicate all the miracles. They didn't have the power to do that. But what happened to Pharaoh? Do you think that he would have said, oh, I need to believe? No, his, his heart got harder and harder and harder. He saw real miracles. He heard the word of God, but he still refused to believe. Here's my point. Whenever Satan sees first advances of the Holy Spirit towards a non-believer, he's going to do whatever he can to deceive them. He's going to do whatever he can to pull them away. He's going to bring about every distraction he can into that non-believer's life because he does not want that person to make that commitment to Christ. Devil is going to basically don't go there. I'm going to try and reel you back in here, you know, because I want to kill you. I want to destroy you. And coming to Christ isn't a part of my plan. And let me say this: even for us as believers, as we step out into ministry, we want to serve the Lord in ministry. The devil isn't going to want you to do that. He's going to want to cause, you know, maybe every temptation that you thought that you were uh, had a handle on to be thrown right back in your face. Why? Because the devil hates God. And God loves you and he hates whatever God loves. Maybe this morning you don't know the Lord. You've been maybe pestered by that friend to come to church. Just come this one time and you'll like it. So you decide to to get this friend off your back and you got up this morning and and everything possible was thrown at you. Maybe phones ringing, things are happening. You're going, I don't know if I can go to church. Listen, that's just the enemy. Don't settle for the world's cheap imitations. Don't tell just stay home and watch TV and watch some religious program on TV. A lot of people are, 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 are settling for what the devil offers. 
Yet he hates you. He wants to destroy you. He wants to send you to hell. He wants to keep you from coming to faith. But Jesus, on the other hand, Paul tells us in Romans 8, 11, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Just like these two witnesses, God one day is going to rise us from the dead where we'll be with Jesus. Death cannot hold us. That's the good news of the gospel. So these, these two prophets, they rise from the dead for all to see. Verse 13, in the same hour there's a great earthquake and the tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. This is what a, a radical series of events. You, you know, the, the camera's still on these two witnesses, you know, and, and, and they've risen, they've gone up, but now the earth is shaking. 7,000 men die and people are freaking out. Some are freaking out and hiding and, and in fear, and some are, it says, are, are coming to, to faith in Christ. In fact, uh, it says that, that, that they were afraid and they gave glory to God. And I think, that, in other words, this is what it's going to take for these Jews to be saved. They realize that they've been following the false Messiah. They've been following an Antichrist and they're going to turn to Jesus Christ. Zechariah 12.10 says, They will look on me whom they have pierced. Romans 11.26, Paul predicted that at the end all Israel will be saved. Finally, this brings us to our third and final point our final math equation, point three, one temple plus two prophets equals three woes. Look at verse 14. John writes, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. And we'll look at that a little more in the next study. But let's just read about the seventh trumpet about to blow. Verse 15 to the end of the chapter. We read, then the seventh, chap- seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and the one who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants of prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of the covenant was seen in his temple, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hell. So we kind of get just a quick overview of, of, of just everything that's happening from this point on. And here we see the third woe judgment. Much has transpired since the sixth trumpet was blown. Seven trumpets is sounded and a judgment comes and we'll see the majesty of God in his plan and really the extent of his majesty. All the kingdoms of the world we read are his. Again, God is in control. Men only think that they're in control. Left-wing governors only think that they are in control. There are some mayors and city council members only think that they're in control. But that's not reality. Sure, we pray for them when we observe whatever mandates they throw at us as long as it doesn't violate God's word. But we but just remain faithful to the Lord because at some point God's going to say, enough is enough. Verse 15, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Christ. This world will be conquered by our coming Messiah. His majesty will be exalted with loud voices. People will not only be worshiping but falling down before God, exalting him. And why are they worshiping and exalting him? Because 
that God's power has been proclaimed and all authority has been given to him over every tribe, tongue, and nation, and he's worthy to be praised. God's plan is being performed and the judgment has finally come. As we read these last few verses, it reminds us that the fact that God is in control, God will judge. Folks, remember that. God is in control. And even though this pandemic has been with us for now almost a year, probably longer than that, we've had the second and third waves come and gone. Businesses continue to struggle. Yet regardless of our personal beliefs regarding the severity of the virus, the validity of the mass, the, the, the fraudulent elections, the, the properly tested vaccines, the deep state, etc., 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 one thing is clear. Our lives, our country is in God's hand and He knows, knows what He's doing. He knows what He's doing. Our responsibility is to remain focused on the goodness and the promises of God. Psalm 18.2 reminds us that the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God and my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Why can we say that? Because here in chapter 11, we see God wins. It all adds up. God's promises are being perfected. His punishment is being pronounced. And the wicked will not escape God's judgment. One temple, two prophets, three woes. No one will get away with anything. Remember that. Sure as one plus one equals two, no one gets away with anything. We will all stand before God and we all have to give an account to the Lord. Now, thankfully, we as Christians have been forgiven of our sin. And so we will no longer be accountable for that. Instead, we read in verse 18 that God will reward his servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear his name, small and great. That's you and I. That's awesome. But to the non-Christian, you'll stand before God one day and have to give an account for the way that you lived your life. What are you going to do? As we close, do you know that your sins are forgiven? Are you right with God? Do you have that hope of heaven? Is your life being lived to worship and glorify God? Or are you just doing your own thing? Listen, make sure this morning that you're right with Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. And Lord, thank you that we as your children know how you have things played out for us in the last days. And none of this would take us by surprise. We can warn others of the coming judgment that's going to happen upon this earth. Lord, we can warn others of the hope that we have in you. And Father, help us as we read, read these events this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit to be that witness for you. Lord, that you would embolden us at work, emboldening us in our homes with our families, especially, Lord, as we have the holiday season, the Christmas celebration coming up, Lord, the, the birth of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, that you would embolden us to share with our family members that don't know you, that our focus, that our hope, that our desire is all in you, Lord Jesus. So we pray, Lord, for our family members that don't know you. We pray for our friends that don't know you. Give us the opportunities, Lord. Use us to be that witness in these days in which we live. We so look forward to, to our time, Lord, when we're with you. We can worship you forever and ever and all eternity. Thank you for this time this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.